So, John chapter 11. Uh, they say that when you have a lot of options, it's really hard to make a decision. And one of the reasons I had chosen to preach through the book of Ruth is so that anytime pastor was away, I didn't have to sit there and wonder, what am I going to preach you guys? preach about, I can just go to the next section, right? And so that expositional preaching is very helpful, uh, not only for us to understand the thought that's going on in the book, but from a practical standpoint, right? It's nice for us to know where we're headed next. Um, However, I finished Ruth last week, so I was back into the same predicament. So um, just to kind of give you a little bit of insight here, um, for myself, I got to say, like, a lot of times when I'm preparing a sermon, I'm just thinking, like, what's going to help me? I know that's not always the best thought. Um, That's why we preach expositionally verse by verse. But in this case, I have preached a lot in the Old Testament. Those of you who've been coming to Equip class, you know we've been in there for years. Um, And I think, obviously, I just preached the book of Ruth. And I think the one-offs that I had done in the past were Psalms. So I had, at some point, I had felt like I needed to preach from the New Testament. Um, and I just know for myself, having spent so much time in the Old Testament, see a lot of talk about the law of God, about the commands, and, and even sometimes we see the direct judgment of God. Old Testament also is very full of grace and mercy and goodness, uh, things that oftentimes we maybe don't see as much. But always in the Old Testament, we're, we're looking at the situation and then redirecting our gaze and and looking to Christ, right? We're always sitting there saying, like, yes, this is a good picture. Yes, this is good practice. But ultimately, it's not something that we're supposed to emulate or not something that we're supposed to fully look at. For example, Boaz, right? Great picture of redemption. Great picture of, of all that Christ would ultimately be, but not Christ. And so... I think when we spend a lot of time thinking about those commands and thinking about God's judgments and God's rules, there can develop in us a tendency towards that legalism, towards that keeping of the rules is going to keep God happy, and therefore the more rules I keep, uh, the more that God will love me and I will earn his favor. And that's a very dangerous place to be as Christians. So, John 11, for me, has been very helpful because we see so much just the compassionate working of Christ amongst his people. And you really get a sense of the heart of God for his people as we read through these passages. And I'll admit, I'm probably a little bit more comfortable with narratives than lists or situations like that. So I trust that this will be very helpful for us this morning. It was for me, so I'll try and pass on what I've learned to you. John 11.1 says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, it's Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. 
Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. If anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. Let's go to him. Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. Let's pray. Father, again, we're thankful for, Lord, your goodness to us, so undeserved on our part, so lavishly given to us through Christ. But I pray that this morning we would have attentive ears and that you would, Lord, communicate with your people. I know there's nothing I have personally to say, Lord, so I pray that your word would speak to your people and that through that, Lord, we would be changed and that you would be glorified. I pray that you would help us to come away with a greater love for Christ, a greater uh, desire to follow him and to emulate him to live for you. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. This is a situation, this is a story that probably most of us are familiar with, at least if you've been in church for any length of time. You've heard the story of the raising of Lazarus. Spoiler alert, I know we didn't get that far. But uh, this is a story that I think for For many of us, as familiar as it is, uh, it may be something that we don't really dig into as much. And so I trust that as we go through this, I'll try and bring out some some things. But one of the first questions I asked myself is, why is this story only found in John? Right? Like if I was going to write a, you know, a story about Jesus and, you know, you can't do everything. John himself says that. I can't. He's like, hey, if if everything that Jesus did and said was recorded, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to fill it, right? Um, And so, you know, but you got to pick and choose. And so John is inspired to write. And and you think, boy, if you're going to pick like 10 major events to record in Jesus' life, if you're Matthew or you're Mark or you're Luke and you're like, I can't tell it all. But there's probably a few that I want to make sure get recorded. I would think that the raising of Lazarus, if it's not number one, is top three, right? Like if we're not going to skip one story about Jesus, I'm Matthew writing this down, Lazarus is probably the one I'm not skipping. And yet, interestingly enough, it is not found in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. It's only found here in John. And, you know, uh, commentators always love to speculate. They always like to think that, oh, okay, well, you know, I've got a good reason for it. I don't have a tremendous reason for it other than I think it speaks to what John's point is that he's trying to make. Each writer is trying to bring across a different aspect of Christ. And John is writing not a narrative, not a biography of Jesus. He's writing to give us a picture of Christ as the Son of God, as deity. He says so himself in John chapter 20. 
Verse 30 and 31, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. He says, I didn't put it all in here. But these ones, the ones I did put in here, are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So this was the purpose that John is writing. He's writing that so that those who read this book and who come across it would see Christ for who he was, more than just a great teacher, more than just a great example, the very Son of God, God incarnate, come down to rescue his people. And so he puts this in here so that we might believe. The question then is, how does the story of the raising of Lazarus help us believe in Christ's deity? I think the answer is obvious, but we'll still go through and do the work, so to speak, of taking the text apart. So first of all, let's start with the situation that arises. There's an illness And we find out a little bit. We really don't have a lot of introduction or even any information surrounding the situation. We're simply told that Lazarus is sick. We don't know what he's got. We don't know how long he's been feeling this way. We know that it's serious enough, at least at this point, that Mary and Martha decide we need to probably do something, right? Whatever we've tried, however long this is going on, it's getting serious enough where we need to maybe reach out, and they reach out to Christ. Now, in this situation, it's also important to note that there's probably been other times in Lazarus' life that he's been sick, and we don't have any record of that, and we don't have any situation, uh, you know, that, that, hey, I've got the flu this morning, Jesus, can you heal me? I've got a little bit of a cold and I've got a headache, can you heal me? There's none of those situations going on. But I just want to say in passing, while this is not the focus, in passing, understand that God's providential healing is at work in those situations as well. God has given us remedies. God has given us intelligence to be able to do that. And so even though we might say, hey, I took some medicine, I did this, understand that it's always the providential work of God to use those ordinary means to help us. And so even when we are sick and we recover from such a small thing, God is still worthy of praise and glory in those, just as much as he's worthy of praise and glory in those dramatic events that we see once in a lifetime where somebody's dealing with some major illness that could be deadly and and God intervenes in a miraculous way. God is intervening in every one of those situations. God is in control. And so it's important for us to keep that in our mind and understand that God is always at work. But in this case, obviously, it was a unique situation. It was a pretty drastic situation. And again, in passing, we notice that when we're introduced to Lazarus, it seems like Lazarus and Jesus have a pretty close connection. Right? If we're familiar with, uh, with Mary and Martha and the story that's recorded for us, uh, even John talks about earlier Mary being the one who anointed. That's a reference back uh, to John, I believe, chapter 12. Or no, I'm sorry. I don't remember the passage. So anyway, it's in John. But she anoints him um, and wipes her feet with her hair. Again, many of us are probably familiar with that. 
But notice the appeal here. When they reach out to Lazarus or to, to Christ and they send the message, Lord, he whom you love is ill. There's always been a deep friendship here. Christ refers to him as his friend. And time and time again, we're going to find this, this reference of how much Christ loved Lazarus and how he loved Martha and how he loved Mary. But notice that with all that love and care and even the close association, we get an indication that probably when Jesus was visiting Jerusalem, he probably frequented the house of Mary and Martha. They lived about two miles outside of Jerusalem, so it was just a small town outside of the main big city of Jerusalem, similar to maybe Tecumseh to Windsor, right? You know, it's just a little bit out of the town, so it's a small town kind of out there. And so, you know, when he would be in Jerusalem, it probably wasn't unusual for him to stop by the house and say hi, spend an afternoon, spend an evening. We know that he had meals with them. And yet for all of that closeness and all of that intimacy and all of that care, Lazarus still gets sick. And Mary and Martha still get worried. And they still have to deal with the problems of everyday life. Jesus is one of their best friends. He is a frequenter to their house, and yet they are not spared every tribulation. They are not spared every sorrow. How instructive this is for us. Because unfortunately, there is a teaching out there that tells us that us being sick or us dealing with trials is actually a problem. That in somehow it is a failure of faith on our part as believers. That's a terrible, terrible teaching. It is a false teaching. And we see this frequently on those televangelists who are living their best life now and who are uh, proclaiming all of the successes that they have had and pointing to the money that they might bring in or the audience that they have and, and telling you that you can experience those same benefits if you would just fix your life because God wants you to be healthy. God wants you to be happy. And God wants you to prosper. And if you're not... The problem is you. And all I can say is that is so foreign to everything we have ever seen about what the life of a Christian looks like and what Christ himself lived. There's a man who didn't even have a place to lay his head. Certainly not living his best life now. Certainly not experiencing prosperity. And so we have to guard against that. Just because we are the people of God does not prevent us from dealing with suffering. In many cases, the people of God in, in suffer even greater than those out in the world. And we experience not only the sorrows that, that our neighbors are uh, experienced, but we also experience, in some cases, the just chastisement of God, but also just the everyday purging and cleansing that comes from trials that God brings our way to grow our faith. And so let's not be fooled. Just because we are Christians doesn't mean our problems go away. But it does, as we're going to see, show us that there will be a purpose in the trials and that Christ himself is compassionate and brings us through them.
It's interesting, too, in this letter, uh, I mean, it's very short. I mean, if I was, if I had a family member who was sick, again, maybe this is just me, I don't mean to put too much of myself in here, but if I had a family member who was sick, Jesus is in another town, and I need some help. I would probably ask for help, but that's not what happens here. They don't ask him, Lord, Lazarus is sick, can you come heal him? Why not? That's like the most obvious thing you should do, right? Like, here's a problem. We need a solution. Jesus is the solution. Will you fix it? And yet that's not what they do. They simply send a message with an announcement, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And maybe that's because they just know Christ so much that they assume that once he hears Lazarus is sick, he'll drop whatever he's doing and rush over and help them out because that's just what we would expect. Jesus, the one that you love, is is sick and and they need some help, so can you come help them? But we don't even really need to ask because it's kind of understood. He knew that Lazarus was sick. He would be coming. But the interesting thing is Jesus knew Lazarus was sick before he ever got the message, didn't he? And if he wanted, he certainly could have been on his way to Bethany, knowing that Lazarus was going to get sick and knowing that he would need him. He probably could have said, you know what, Uh, I know we've got some stuff going on here, but I just know there's some things that are going to happen, so I want to make sure I'm in Bethany so that when my friend gets sick, I can heal him. That doesn't happen. And I think as we look at this, Notice the the tenderness, and this is what I'm hoping to come out here. Um, The reason I feel like they don't have to ask is because they know Jesus already loves them and will take care of the situation. There's no need to ask because it's already known his heart is with them. But they point out, hey, this guy's sick. That's it. Now, notice too also that they don't say, Lazarus who loves you is sick. Because that's, again, in my own sinfulness, I would probably do things. Remember all those things I did for you? You know, we got something that needs done around the house. We need some help. We're not handy. We're like, remember that one time I did this? I need some help over here. You know, that, that speaks again to our own natures where we're always looking to reciprocate, right? We're always looking for the payback. I'll do this if you do that. I'll do this because I'm expecting something in return. Yet we know scripture specifically tells us that we shouldn't do that, Right? that we should be giving, expecting nothing in return. And so had it been me, I probably would have said, remember how, how much I loved you? Remember the dinners that we cooked for you? Remember all those things and how much we enjoyed spending time together? Lazarus is sick. Can you do us a favor? Can you help us out? That's not the appeal here. Why? Because we know that any time that we appeal to our own works as somehow meriting God's response we're always going to fall flat. Because what in the world can I point to that I've done for God that he has not empowered me to do for him? 
And so the appeal is not to the love that Lazarus has for Christ, because frankly, any love that Lazarus might have for Christ is so minuscule and so small compared to the love that Christ has for Lazarus that why even bring it up? Because anything I do for God is so insignificant as compared to what he has done for me that why would I try to leverage anything that I've done and I would just fall at God's mercy and say, God, you have done so much for me. Anything that I ask is absolutely uh, more than I deserve and I can't earn it, so I just count on your blessing and your goodness and your love that though you have given me already so much, you will give this to me too. And so they appeal to the love that Christ has for Lazarus because that's really all we can appeal to when it comes to God intervening on our behalf. What can I point to in my life that merited God's love for me? John, later on in one of his other letters, tells us that this is love, 1 John 4.10, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God is the one acting. He's acting based on his love for us. What a comfort, Christian. What a comfort for you to know that God's care and God's attention and God's intervention on your behalf is not because of what you have done, but because simply and purely he loves you. And that blows my mind because I know me. And I wonder how sometimes my own family can love me. And they are nowhere near as holy as God is. And yet he has loved me. How good is our God? How good and faithful that he not only sent his son, but then he pours out on us richly all the blessings of Christ. It wasn't just, I will give you heaven, but sit in the corner when you get here and don't look at me. It is an embracing of us as a people, as his children, as as co-inheritors with Christ. And the thought of that ought to boggle our mind. God loves us, and because of that love, we can count on him to be faithful to us. Now again, if this story had run like we expect it to, written the letter, hey, Lazarus is sick, can you come heal him? And as soon as Jesus receives that letter, drops everything that he's doing, and rushes back to Bethany, to try and get to Lazarus before he dies, right? I mean, that would be, I mean, if I'm writing a movie script, that's how this is running, right? We have the, oh, the so-and-so is sick. Uh, you know, they've been so close. They've been so friendly. Jesus really cares for Lazarus. And so we'll send out this message. And, and just as Lazarus is about to take his last breath, land on his bed in his bedroom, Jesus is going to throw open the door, reach out, grab him, and heal him. Just like if the clock is at one second. You notice the clocks never go off at like 10 seconds or a minute. It's always one second. 
right as he's taking his last breath, Jesus is going to pop open that door. He's going to heal him. And we're all going to be able to celebrate whew, just in the nick of time. That's how I would have written it. But that's not how it happened. Because remember, this is a history, not a legend. This is a history of what actually happened. And God has something much more important to teach his people than simply just delivering them from a little bit of a problem right then and there. And so, Jesus, hearing this, in verse 4 says, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. What does that tell us about this illness? It wasn't random. It wasn't unknown. It was planned. And that takes us back a little bit. Wait a second. God in his plan had Lazarus get sick even to the point of death? How can that be if he loves them? Ah, my friend, God loves us so much loves us so much that he does not just accept us as we are, but he makes us like his son. And it is more critical that we become like Christ than that we have comfort. And so here in verse 5, we get this little aside, this little parenthesis. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. I feel like that's almost put in here as a little bit of a heads up. Things are not going to go as you planned. So just remember, he does love them. Because in verse 6, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he rushed off to Bethany. Nope. He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Like, what? What? What are you doing, Jesus? This guy is about to die, and you're just going to hang out for another two days in this town? What are you thinking? The whole point of these messengers. And can you imagine? Now, if we think about this, based on some of the geography, I'll give us a little bit of, of backstory. So just before this, we find that Jesus is somewhere on the other side of the Jordan River from Bethany. Don't know exactly where, but... Most people presume he's probably about a day's journey away from Bethany on the other side of the Jordan River. Um, So, you know, maybe 20, 25, 30 miles at the most away from Bethany, which, I mean, doesn't sound like much to us, but if you're walking it, that's a day's journey, right? So he's about a day away in most cases from what we can tell. And so the messengers would have left, taking about a day to get to Jesus, they get there, and they say, hey, Lazarus is sick. Jesus says, well, this sickness doesn't lead to death. It's for the glory of God. And so the messengers probably head back to Bethany thinking everything's going to be all right. Jesus says this isn't going to lead to death. So, okay, we'll go let Mary and Martha know. So they head back, and the next day, We're going to do some mathing here. They probably run into Mary and Martha, and Lazarus has already been dead. 
for almost a day. Imagine the shock of those messengers. Wait a second. We just went and talked to Jesus and told him Lazarus is going to be sick. He said this illness isn't going to lead to death. So we're going to come back and say, hey, we are thinking we're going to find out that Lazarus is all right by the time we get back. Because does Jesus need to be there to heal Lazarus? Spoiler alert, no, he doesn't. Right? He's done this before. He has healed somebody without having to be present. We have that situation recorded for us also where the... uh, The man who, uh, 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 he had a servant who was sick, and he was uh, asking Jesus if Jesus was going to heal, if he would come and heal him, and Jesus was like, no, I'm not going to do this, and then eventually he agrees to heal him, and as the guy heads back, he meets somebody coming and says, hey, your servant's all better. He's like, when did this happen? The servant's like, oh, it was yesterday at like such and such a time, which was the time that Jesus said. So Jesus could have very well just said, all right, well, let's heal Lazarus from here. God's not limited by distance, right? But he doesn't do that. So the messengers come back. They come to Mary and Martha, probably thinking, hey, uh, tell me the good news. Lazarus is all better. We just came from Jesus. We're going to celebrate together what he did miraculously from way over there. And instead, they find a funeral service getting ready. Wait a second, what? I'm so confused. What is going on here? And you imagine Mary and Martha are probably sitting there waiting for the messengers to come back, and they're probably looking around saying, where's Jesus? I sent you guys to go tell Jesus that he was sick. I, I don't see him. Is he around the corner? Did he get lost along the way? What's going on? So you have this really tough situation where you have one group expecting one outcome, another group expecting another, and imagine, just imagine for a moment, the doubt, fear, the sorrow that begins to settle in in that situation. Because things haven't gone the way they expected them to. Things haven't gone the way that they thought they should have. Where is Jesus in all this? Have you been there? Those two, three, four days? Maybe for you it hasn't been two or three days. Maybe it's been two or three months. It's been two or three years. Two or three decades. Why? What is going on? What is the purpose in this? What is happening? This is not going the way I thought it would. Good news is there is a fourth day coming. But there is that tension in the two or three days before, isn't there? Because Mary and Martha are going to mourn. They don't know when Jesus is going to show up. Could be a week, could be two. He might never come. What do we do with this? Where are we at? Does Jesus even love me? Now, they don't get to see all the conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. We'll leave them and we'll go back to Christ right now. Keep that in mind. They don't know what's happening. But they, I can most assuredly, are disappointed. And they for sure are mourning. Because this is not the outcome they expected. Let's go back to Christ. 
He spends two days longer in the place where he was. And after this, he says to his disciples, all right, let's go to Judea. Now, again, the disciples probably, I mean, I very much relate to the disciples. I would probably be saying some of these same things, right? We look at them, but we always have the benefit of this is thousands of years afterwards. You know, we've got all kinds of scripture and commentaries and sermons on this. I have a feeling we're sitting there, we might have some of the same reactions, right? And I, I had in my notes the clueless disciples, but let's, let's be fair, I would have been equally as clueless to what's going on and what's the plan. But they, uh, Jesus says, all right, I've been here for two days. Let's go to Judea. And the disciples are like, wait a second, Jesus. Uh, you know, I mean, we found out, you said that this wasn't going to lead to death. So that's why we assumed we didn't go back, because you'd already healed him. Everything's fine. Why are we going over there now? Because, in case you forgot Jesus, last time you were in town, nobody was a big fan. They were trying to kill you. And if we go back there so soon, we'll probably face the same opposition. We'll probably face some persecution, and we might die. So do you really think it's a good idea to go back? If Lazarus is all right, let's just stay here where things are at least a little calmer. And so they say, look, they were just trying to kill you, and you want to go back there again? Then Jesus gives this cryptic answer, right? Like, sometimes you're like, where is this coming from? What does this mean? Fortunately, we can dig in and understand. But this is kind of like a, a proverb that he's using, right? He answers this and he says, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anybody walks in the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. So kind of a cryptic answer. What does he mean by this? His disciples say, are we really good? Is it really safe for us to go back? Not a great idea, Jesus. And he gives them this answer about walking in light. Well, I mean, there may be more to it, but ultimately what Jesus' point is is this. I have a mission to complete. I have a purpose that I have come here for. And until that purpose is fulfilled, we don't need to worry about all the rest of the things. And so Jesus wasn't afraid of being stoned by the Jews in Jerusalem because he was already set to be crucified by the Romans. In Jerusalem. And so he had no fear about what was going to happen next because he already knows what's happening and where the situation is. And so he's allaying the fears of the disciples, basically saying, I've got this. God has a plan. God is working and it'll be okay. Until God has fulfilled his purposes, we do not need to worry about these other things. And again, comforting to us to know that Christ has a plan. And we look at the world around us and see everything going backwards and going upside down. And what in the world is happening? This whole thing's falling apart, spinning out of control. God knows exactly what he's doing. God has a purpose and God has a plan that he is executing. And he will fulfill his promises in his word. And so though we may look at this world in turmoil and we may certainly mourn over it, and desire to bring the gospel to it, we also don't need to fear it. Because God is in control. 
And God will work his purposes and God will deliver his people. And so we have this kind of obtuse group of disciples who really aren't getting what Jesus is trying to do here. And so Jesus, in a very loving way, finally just tells them plainly. I love when he, you know, like he tells these parables and then he goes and tells his disciples what he means by the parables. Because his disciples, again, very relatable, like me. I don't get it. Explain it, please. What do you mean? And then he just says very plainly what's happening, right? So he says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. I'm going to go wake him up. And they're like, well, if he's sleeping, don't wake him up. He's probably getting better. No, not what I mean. Very plainly, he's dead. Now, again, the disciples still, I don't think, quite comprehend everything that's going to happen. Because their answer is, well, I guess if we're going to Lazarus's funeral and we're probably going to get stoned and he's going to get caught, we might as well go with him and die with him too. Now, that's a brave statement, especially from somebody like Thomas, who wouldn't believe. But he puts on a bold face and he's prepared to die with him. And Jesus, again, the love of Christ, that he would be so patient, right? How many times I just be like, you guys, you've been doing this for three years. You've seen so many miracles. What is not getting through, right? Like with our kids, sometimes we do so many things. You're like, why are you not getting this? I, well, like, what is happening? Uh, that's, again... I own sinful reaction, but Christ is so patient with his people. When we cry out, God, I don't understand what you're doing here. I don't get it. Or we do something foolish and we, we kind of just jump ahead of the situation. God in his love patiently brings us back, patiently instructs us, patiently reassures us with and all I can say time and time again, every time I'm confronted with the person of Christ, how can you not love him? I understand the reason we love him is because of the work that God has done in our hearts by loving him, by loving us first. Oh my goodness. This is what I love about the stories of Jesus because so many times we look and say, that's not what I would have done. That's not what I would have done. That's because we are failures. We are, we are fallen in sin. Christ is so patient and so good and so loving. How could we not adore and worship and love him back? That is what I hope I can convey to you as we look at this situation. Christ so kind even in the midst of not doing what they expected. You understand that even in our midst of our trials, there is a kindness and a grace and a mercy that is still there. Think about this. When you experience tragedy, we often have family and friends who comfort us. Do we have the word of God that brings us peace? He's not left us alone. He's not left us to try and figure it out. He constantly is bringing those small mercies even when the larger plan can't be seen by us. He assures us that he can be trusted. 
Moving quickly on then, I'm not sure how far we'll get. I won't take too much more time here. We'll save the rest for next week. I just kind of want to very briefly, very briefly talk about when Jesus does arrive. Verse 17, now when Jesus came, he found Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. So let's do some math here. Lazarus is sick. Jesus is maybe a day away. They leave. That's a day. Jesus waits two days. Comes back and finds out Lazarus has been dead four days. That means that probably somewhere on that first day when the messenger set out, Lazarus passes away. Maybe on the second day when they actually get to Jesus is when Lazarus is dying. And so he comes back and he finds that Lazarus has already been dead four days. And so Mary and Martha have been crying by a tomb and crying in their home and devastated for four days waiting for Jesus. And you know, I bet they thought, even if Jesus couldn't have been here, to save Lazarus in time because he died right after we sent the messengers. I would have thought that he would at least would have come back with the messengers so he could be here for the funeral. So he could be here to comfort us. Imagine what's going through their minds right now. And then Jesus appears on the scene and sees the funeral's already happened. Lazarus is buried. Mary and Martha are just weeping. In verse 19, many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. This would have been so devastating, not only because of obviously the close relation, but in that time, in that culture, Lazarus would have been the supporter for his sisters. We don't have any mention of any husbands for them. So if they're single, they're depending on their brother, because there's no indication of parents here, that he's going to provide for them, that he's going to take care of them through their singleness. And now they've lost that, which means they could potentially lose their home, potentially lose their income. What are they going to do? And so there's all the sorrow, yes, of losing a family member who they've been so close to, but also now the wonder of what are we going to do financially? We could be destitute. Echoes of Ruth, incidentally. And Martha here heard that Jesus was coming. She went out to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Again, we're going to see the difference between Mary and Martha. Martha, always the active one, always the one going out. And, and when we saw her at the dinner, she was the one preparing the dinner and getting everything ready and making sure that everything was perfect, being a great hostess. Uh, whereas Mary is just sitting there listening at the feet of Jesus. So Martha, true to her character, rushes out to meet Jesus, whereas Mary just kind of hangs back and stays in her sorrow and her mourning. And uh, 21, I don't even know how this conversation goes. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Ugh. 
just the weight of that. Now, I don't think she's making any sort of accusation like, why didn't you show up? Why weren't you here? If you'd have been here, this wouldn't have happened. That's not the tone that we're picking up because we see that she has belief in Jesus. But I think it's just a a statement of sorrow. If only, that that cry, if only you had been here, this might not have happened. He wouldn't have died. If, If just you would have been here a day or two before, if just things had happened a little bit differently, I know you would have healed him. Would have been okay. Verse 22, but even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. I think there's a subtle hint, maybe a very small hope. If you had been here, this wouldn't have happened, which as we're going to see is good for them. If you'd have been here, this wouldn't have happened, but I know whatever you ask, God will give you. Want to ask for something? Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And here we see Martha being about as obtuse as the disciples. Well, yeah, I know. He's going to rise again in the resurrection the last day. Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. I'm not going to go any further than that today. Next week, we'll talk about confrontation with Mary, ultimately the resurrection of Lazarus, and even the reaction of those to that resurrection. There's a lot more to cover. I just want to stop here for a moment and have us again reflect on where we're at. In all of this, Christ is not unmoved, even though he knows what's going to happen. We're going to see next week that very short verse, Jesus wept. Because even though he waited for that two days, even though this was the plan all along, he is still impacted and he is still compassionate and he still does empathize. Hebrews 2 tells us, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Understand that? Christ felt sorrow. He wept, just like you do, yet without sin. He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Therefore, Verse 17 of Hebrews 2, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Have you ever been in that position where somebody comes along and they try to tell you it's going to be okay, and you sit there and say, you have no idea what you're talking about. You don't relate to this. Yeah, you feel bad for me, but you don't know what it's like. What Christ came to do is to say, I do know what it's like. And I will redeem you. And because I know what it's like, he has compassion. He has love. He has empathy. So here we see the God of heaven, holy, just, far above our comprehension, has come down and mingled in the dirt, so to speak. He has become humanity. He has taken on that body and put himself in the midst of a suffering people so that out of love he can relate and redeem. Christian, remember how much you are loved by Christ and how much he knows about what you suffer. You are not forgotten, you are not abandoned. And when you struggle, he is sensitive to that. So many times we get this picture of God who is so removed from us and so high above us that how could he possibly understand what I'm going through and how could he possibly forgive me for this? Because, I mean, I look at this and I think, how can I do this? And I'm fallen, I'm messed up, I'm sinful, and I don't even understand how I can be forgiven of this. How could God, who is so far above me, do this? I would say because he also has taken on humanity, and he has borne our griefs and borne our sorrows, and he has paid for it all. And so when you come to him for forgiveness, you can trust that, he, that when you come to him, he is sensitive and compassionate, and forgiving. And he doesn't say, that's too much, that's too far, I can't deal with that, that's too icky for me. No. He understands your frailties, and he forgives and he loves. And what can we say but how good is our God to us, that he would love us, knowing, knowing what I know about me, He loves us. He cares for us. We don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This is what God is doing in your life. Though you may not see it immediately, God is working in our lives to accomplish his glory and to bring about his kingdom. And to further it. And so what can we do but thank him for his patience and for his goodness and his compassion. And if you are not a Christian. I urge you to see Christ for who he is. He sees the suffering that you go through. And even though it's a result of your own sin, he still loves you. How many times have we had somebody 
And we think, well, yeah, that's tough. But frankly, you got yourself into that mess. That is never God's love for us. He doesn't sit there and say, I told you that would happen. See, now you got to deal with it. Sorry, not my problem. No, he loves us so much that he intervenes. And when he sees us in our sin and sees us unable even to come to him because we are so broken and so lost, he instead reaches out and rescues us. And even puts himself through the same sorrows and the same struggles so that he can relate to us in that rescue. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. What does Jesus call us in John 15? You are my friend. You do what I command you. How can we not love and adore so great a friend? It is out of love that Christ, if you're not a Christian, calls you away from your sin and calls you to him. Because your sin is destructive. Your sin separates you from God. Your sin cannot bring you joy. It can only bring death. And as we saw, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And he comes to bring life to dead people. If you're dead in your trespasses and sins, he is not content to leave you there, but he urges you to respond with faith. And he will save you. He will rescue you from your sins. If he can bring back physical life, he can bring back spiritual life. He can raise those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. You are not beyond saving. You are not beyond his love. And I urge you to respond to that with faith. Give your life to Christ. He will save you. Christian, again, just a reminder, before we go on to the next part next week, this is going to be a foretaste of a greater miracle that Christ will perform. Because he not only raises Lazarus, but he will then raise himself, and through the ages, raise you and I to new life, spiritually and ultimately eternally. And so the Bible tells us that Christ is not in a tomb, but he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he ever lives to make intercession for you. When you sin, you have an advocate with the Father. There at the throne of God is one who knows all the struggles you go through, knows the sorrows you feel, knows your weaknesses, and daily, every moment, every second, intercedes on your behalf because of his love for you. What a comfort that when we sin, we have that advocate there at the throne of God interceding for us. I trust that's a comfort. Next week, we'll talk about a little more about the resurrection of Lazarus and the reactions that come from it. I trust this has been beneficial. Let's pray. Father, as we close this service, I pray that if nothing else, this would have the intention that you gave it that your son would be glorified. We know that this, you allowed this situation in the life of Mary and 
Martha and Lazarus and those who witnessed this, you allowed this struggle and this trial for your glory so that Christ might be revealed to be the Son of God. I pray that you would open hearts this morning who have not come to believe in you and help them to see who Christ is. Help them to abandon their sin, turn from it and give their life to Christ. Lord, we pray that you would comfort your people. We pray that we would take courage in the fact that you are able to raise the dead, that you have suffered, that you are sympathetic, and we can go to you and know that we can be forgiven, that we can be strengthened, and that you can work all things for our good. So we thank you for your sovereign hand. Thank you for your love for us, unmerited and undeserved and overflowing. We pray that you would be glorified in your people. In Jesus' name, amen.